1: Hi, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books and East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke to Bruce Rusk about his book Critics and Commentators, the Book of Poems as Classic and Literature, that was published with the Harvard University Press in 2012. Now, Bruce is not just an extraordinarily elegant writer and translator of Chinese texts and Chinese poetry. He's also a really wonderful reader and a reader who brings a number of types of objects and texts and inscriptions and uh, ways of thinking about what constitutes a historical document to his work in the history of Chinese literature and Chinese thought. He also happens to be really, really cute, and I can say that because I'm married to him. We had a chance to talk about his book at home with the aid of our cat who you may or may not hear in the course of the interview but who was present um, for the entire conversation and seemed totally fascinated at least that's what it seemed like to me in my humble opinion, um, but by, by what we were talking about. The book itself looks at the interactions between this central text in the history of Chinese classical literature, the Shijing, the book of poems, the book of songs, the book of poetry. It's known by all of those um, translations and more. And the practice of what Bruce calls secular poetry, both writing and reading about and uh, writing about, reading about, and composing poems um, as a form of literature. So the book is about many things. It's about the history of this particular text, the book of poems, and the way it has been interpreted, used, in some cases, the way elements of it have been forged, It's also about the way we might think about historicizing the concept of a poem, the concept of poetry as literature itself. This is not something that transcends space and time, but as Bruce shows, it emerges at a very particular point in a particular way, at least in the context of Chinese text and Chinese history. It's also on some level a book about comparison and juxtaposition, not just in Bruce's approach to the text, but also in the ways that scholars, writers, artists, producers of documents on materials ranging from um, written matter on paper to stone and metal, how they have also used comparison and juxtaposition as a way to understand their own products and that of their interlocutors in relation to a larger context and a larger genealogy and a wider genealogy of written material on many different kinds of objects over time. It was great fun to talk with him, um, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Bruce Rusk about his book, Critics and Commentators, The Book of Poems as Classic and Literature. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Bruce, and thank you for sitting and talking with me today.
0: Thank you, Carla.
1: So could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of Chinese studies in the first place?
0: Well, in my case, it's probably pretty straightforward. I uh, lived in China for three years when I was younger, going to high school, and um, got interested at that time in Chinese history um, Chinese language and studied a little bit of Chinese then and um, sort of got interested in poking around Beijing um, went to historical museums and that kind of thing and after that going to college knew that I wanted to major in something to do with Chinese studies so I did, I majored in Chinese history and continued that into grad school. So that's, that's how it started.
1: Great. Now the book that we're talking about today is a study of poems and poetry in Chinese history that looks at the ways that the book of poems and poetry, so sure with a capital S and sure with a lowercase s, were, as you put it, always related and never identical. It takes a new approach to the study of the book of poems by approaching it from the perspective of its interaction with what you call secular literature, and we'll talk a little bit about that notion uh, a little bit later on. How did you come to this topic in particular?
0: I came into it kind of in a very backwards way and um, not in a way that I would ever recommend to anyone else because um, it's not the way certainly you should go about, I think, writing a first book. But it grew out of a project, my dissertation, which was about forgeries of classical texts in the 16th century. And... one chapter of the dissertation morphed into the basis for a chapter of the book, but um, really it um, was a side effect of an internal problem in Chinese studies, which is going back, finding precedents for things, and uh, finding that the phenomenon I was looking at in the Ming Dynasty in the 16th century actually had built up over time and had precedence um, going back to uh, very early Chinese history. And so this is kind of uh, tracing of that process of um, the interaction between what I call, as he said, secular poems and the Book of Poems, this collection of... 300, 311 um, ancient poems that were compiled very early on and that became kind of a uh, revered classic uh, throughout most of Chinese history.
1: Now, you've alluded a little bit to the transition from dissertation to book, and that in this case, it was, um, it was kind of unusual, right? It wasn't your typical take the manuscript or take the dissertation as a basis for the book manuscript and tweak it or a little bit or tweak it a lot and then come to the book manuscript. So this was a much more extensive process of really rewriting um, a new book from a chapter of the dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation chapter, in this case largely, to book. Were there any major transformations along the way in how you thought of how you were approaching the topic that wound up becoming the focus of the book? Were there any significant challenges along the way? Can you uh, speak a little bit to that? Sure.
0: Well, one one issue that I kind of touched on in the in the dissertation, but hadn't really done that much with was this issue of the relationship between, um, the study of literary criticism, the criticism of relatively recent poems and, um, the study of the book of poems. And in the course of transitioning to that larger topic, I had to do a lot of kind of catching up in terms of not just, you know, dealing with that field, but also, Dealing with that whole history, which is which is really quite understudied, it's sort of a strange, um, to me, a kind of surprising uh, fact that although there's a lot of study, certainly of Chinese poetry and a lot of study of the uh, all the so-called Confucian classics, including the Book of Poems, there's relatively little s- study that actually looks closely at the role of the Confucian classics in other domains. Um, we'll say, and every textbook will tell you that these books were central, and that it, it was essential for everyone to understand them, um, to be an educated person in most of Chinese history. But in terms of how that actually is reflected in other kinds of intellectual and cultural activity, um it's often not so clear. And so it actually took more work than I had expected to trace out those connections, um, both looking at um, studies of the classics commentaries, especially, um, but also things like literary criticism where they invoke the classic, um, and that takes time because it's generally scattered and involves either searching or, or manually or electronically through a lot of material.
1: And speaking of a lot of material, also the time frame of the book uh, is—it it seems like that was another kind of at least from a reader's perspective, who saw both incarnations, a really remarkable change. The the time frame of the book itself here is really remarkably extensive. It's 25 centuries. So can you talk a little bit about that decision. So the decision to frame this project in such a long scope of time, and what challenges that particular aspect actually of the research and of the writing might have posed to you, or um, and conversely, what um, what are some of the really good things that came out of choosing that time frame that you may not have been able to do otherwise.
0: Well, the first problem in dealing with anything like this is that when you're talking about a scholarly tradition that builds up over those 25 centuries, and at any point along its trajectory, people will be referring to any other earlier point. Um, People writing, for example, commentaries on the Book of Poems will always be citing the earlier commentaries. So whatever point you dip into that stream, you have to have at least some understanding, and if you're writing about it, give your reader some understanding of what was going on earlier. And in this particular case, one of the problems I had was that um, the pattern I was trying to draw out, which is this relationship where the commentaries on the book of poems tend to somewhat uh, secretly or uh, certainly not openly in most cases draw on earlier literary criticism was I think there but in order to draw it out I had to find repeated instances of it and that meant covering many different uh, periods many different kinds of sources so that was one of the sort of challenges but it's also one of the benefits is that it does show a pattern even if what's going on at any particular moment could be very different uh, from other periods. And um, the challenge is, of course, in part to try to respect the differences between those time periods um, and of also inevitably skipping over large periods and lots of material and not any one of the sources I wrote about could easily be the subject of its own monograph. So inevitably there's a lot of that... Um, But I think the movement, um, the covering those different um, cases, I hope, works to show that there was this pattern that repeated itself over the course of many centuries.
1: Great. Thank you. Now, the book opens with Jufu, a Han Dynasty official and a person you call critic in the borderlands being sent to the then southwest margins of the empire in what's now Sichuan province. He talks um, from there about the songs of the white wolf people. And this becomes an example of the practice of comparative literature within the Chinese literary canon, which is itself really interesting. This is actually... One of many examples throughout the book where comparison, if including the setting out of relationships and juxtapositions between um, kind of pairs of terms or pairs of concepts, becomes really important as an epistemic device. So on the um, sort of larger scale, I've already mentioned that the book looks at the relationship between these two aspects of poetry that we might consider poles, um, poetry, the genre, and the book of poems, the canon, or sure and sure. Also, each chapter of the book traces a topic in the history of the relationship that's related to this, the relationship between the book of poems and what you call non-canonical literature. So the canon and non-canonical literature. Now, this brings us to a topic that I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier earlier. And that's the idea of secular literature. You call non-canonical texts in this book not uh, you know you call non-canonical texts secular and just have decided to use that terminology. Can you talk a little bit about that choice? What is um, because that's an unusual choice, right? What is calling non-canonical literature secular give you?
0: Well, it does a couple of things. For the the, the chief benefit is just that it's a little bit more positive than. Using a negative in every instance where I would make this reference, so um, I started off calling it simply non-canonical. Um, it and found that very repetitive to talk about poetry that's not part of the canon in those terms. But I think it also has another benefit, which is um, actually to highlight, strangely, despite the lack of a negative, this kind of status of the um, the canon, which is to say that the, ca- the secular poem is of this world, the historical world, and the canonical poem, while it can be traced, as it was understood uh, by readers of the biblical poems, to particular points in history doesn't enter into history in the same way um, because it has a kind of timeless status as a a revered canon. Um, Sometimes it's even translated as a sacred canon. And um, it can make certain—it's constantly relevant because it's not of the present time. And um, to call other poetry secular— Um, certainly isn't to deny that it had an important place and that it wasn't widely uh, appreciated in later times, but uh, there are certain ways of talking about the canon that people almost never apply to what I call secular poems. And so um, just to keep those those two kinds of statuses clear, um, and then to also make clear over time um, how, that, how those relationships change. I think um, secular was a handy way of doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Now, the first chapter opens with an anecdote from Zhuangzi, which features um, one of my favorite characters um, in the book, a, w- the person who you call a drive-by poet, Jiayu, who's a madman from the southern state of Chu and Confucius. Can you talk a little bit about that anecdote and the way that it frames um, what you're doing in that chapter?
0: Sure. Well, that story there are two versions of that story uh one in Zhuangzi one in uh, Luyni the analects and uh, of course there's a lot of debate about when both of those texts were uh finished and when the material in them uh comes from so we can't really know which one is Older, um, much less original, but the basic story in both cases is that um, this guy Jiayu comes along and spouts a poem at Confucius, and um, it mocks him for trying to improve the world. And in the Analects, in the in the Zhuangzi version, um, Jiayu just disappears. The the, the anecdote ends um, with the poem, but in the Analects version, Confucius tries to. Uh, speak with him, Um, but T.I.U. basically uh, runs away, and um, Confucius doesn't get a chance. Um, And the way I read that is as Confucius trying to take his poem very much in the spirit in which he takes the many instances in um, the Analects of interpretation of a poem from the Book of Poems, a canonical poem. Um, And interestingly, the Poem by Gyu or the song that Gyu sings is the only non canonical poem that appears in the Analects so it 's an interesting example because it 's our only um, example at least from the Analects, um, and thus in what was considered the most reliable source for understanding Confucius of thinking about how Confucius would have understood a poem that was not part of the canon, and he interprets it very much like. A canonical poem. It's an invitation to engage in a back and forth dialogue with um, the person presenting it to him. Now, in the other cases in the book of in, in the Analects, where one of these poems is um, brought up, usually by a disciple, um, the process of interpretation is a way of revealing something about the person's own understanding of. Uh, either a particular philosophical point or the world or morals. And um, that seems to be how um, Confucius is taking it because the language of speaking with the person, engaging in dialogue is exactly the same in this passage as it is in the passages, the very famous passages with his um, disciples. And the reason I found that so interesting is that this is a model for me of what happens later when other Um, writers try to interpret this new phenomenon of poetry being composed by contemporaries, they do something in many cases similar to what Confucius did, which is interpret it in ways that are inspired by the way classicists read the book of poems.
1: Great, Thank you. Now, the chapter itself argues that when early Confucians or Ru scholars, as you call them in the book, interpreted secular verse, they actually used techniques that had been developed for the canonical poems, and in this way, they set a pattern for the readings of the songs of Chu Chu later in the Han Dynasty. Now, the Chusu actually comes up quite a few times in the course of the book in really, really interesting ways, so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about that um, collection. Why is that so important to this story and and why do we need to understand what 's happening and in what way do we need to understand what 's happening with the chuza in order to understand what you're um, what you're arguing in the book?
0: well chuza is a very um, interesting collection um, that appeared late in the warring States period um, at least some parts of it come from late in the warring states period and it unlike the book of poems um, the pieces in it are very much associated with uh, named authors, even if in many cases those attributions are now considered unreliable um, but it 's the first extensive collection of poems um, from that at least survives from after the time of the book of poems, and it was uh, important. I mean, one of the ways it was important was simply that the style of it was the inspiration behind a lot of early Han poetry. Um, But people also valued it highly as a uh, literary work, also as in some cases they read it as a kind of historical source. Um, And in order to justify doing so, because this was a very unusual kind of text at this point in history, uh, people weren't widely in the habit of writing uh, poems, and, and the genre in which they did, the fu, um, was um, very different from the canonical poems, and the chuzi is kind of a bridge between them. The terms in which they read chuzi were certainly drawn from commentarial traditions on the Book of Poems, But then they also get extended, so they have to be modified in order to read this later poetry and um, reinterpreted and used in new ways. And that process then, I think, changes the meaning of those terms and can be reapplied back to the Book of Poems.
1: Great. Thank you. Now, you just alluded to the importance of the writing of poetry. And um, I just want to signal for listeners that one of the things that happens in this chapter is that you're emphasizing not just the interpretation of poetry and the way that changes, but also the writing, the practice of writing poetry. The writing of true poetry, patterned actually on the classic, on the Book of Poems, becomes part of elite practice in the second century C. in the Common Era, and this um, this actually becomes an important part of the story. It's something that we might take for granted that the you know when we think about poetry now, and when listeners, especially perhaps listeners and readers who aren't yet familiar with the book think about what's involved um, in the larger world of poems and poetry the writing of poetry for us i think i'll just speak as one reader it's kind of a natural part of that you just take for granted that when you're thinking about what it means to think about poetry you're taking for granted that people write it but that's not the case um, at every point in this history that you're giving us and the writing of poetry in this particular vein only emerges at this very particular point in time. So um, that seemed to me to be a really important part of how you're re-envisioning and and asking us to re-envision this larger history. Now, from the fall of the Han in the 3rd century to the end of the Tang in the 10th century, as you show here in this first part of the book, writers actually drew parallels between individual books of poems and the Book of Poems, capital B, capital P, the Shijing, the the canon. There were at least a couple of ways in which this happened, and you um, talk about these in this chapter. One way is on the basis of scale, assembling 300 or so poems, and another is on the basis of wording and title. So can you talk a little bit about um, that phenomenon, and then the importance of that to the argument here of this part of the book?
0: Sure. Um, Well, one of the things I I discovered along the way was that um, there were ways of, as you said, of of making direct imitations of of the poems, um, or of likening a poem to the uh, canon, but there was also this practice of treating a collection of poems, um, and this of course depends on having some idea of um, individual or in some cases collective authorship um, and um, the also the idea of a book as a kind of fixed entity um, with a closed number of poems in it um, that by their form, in either the scale or the the title, um, is made into a, a, a kind of equivalent of the canon. Um, and this collection, this this idea of having three hundred poems, um, which was the magic number that's in um, the original book of poems, even if we actually have three hundred and eleven, um, that became a a practice, certainly, in the Tang, as far as we can tell. And um, the use of certain terms somewhat later, uh, towards the end of the Tang, taken from the Book of Poems to title one's own collection um, was an even more explicit way of saying, my collection of poetry is akin to um, the Book of Poems. And then it became a very common practice later to use it for anthologies, um, and especially to call them fengya, uh, the heirs and the odes named after two parts of the Book of Poems, and um, to call this collection, say, of poems from a particular region, the heirs and odes of that region, um, which fit with the structure of the original uh, book of poems because the subchapters within it were also geographically arranged. So in that sense, the books are also kind of a, those such anthologies are the voice of a particular region. Um, and I think that kind of titling suggests that people saw um, at least in the potential uh, function of poetry for uh, moral improvement and for reflecting um, the political and cultural spirit of a time and place, um, something like what they saw the Book of Poems doing in ancient times.
1: Now, as we move into the next chapter, um, this chapter, chapter two in particular, looks closely at two aspects of the treatment of secular poetry by anthologists and compilers, and you've just briefly mentioned anthologists, and they come up um, in this chapter in really, really interesting ways. So this, these two aspects of the treatment of these um, anthologists and compilers really allows you in this chapter to trace the history of collections as a way to trace the changes in the relationship between secular and canonical poems. So it it on, on the one hand, one of, the, one of these two aspects is that it traces how pre Qin and early Han poetry was selected, defined, and collected, and how editors justified those choices. It also looks at how editors of poetry collections put the two layers of the meaning of the term "sure," the canonical and the secular layer of the same term, to work in framing their collections. Now, one of the really, really fascinating things about this chapter is something that I've wanted to ask you about since the book came out and since I, um, since I saw early stages of the book, and that's your use of diagrams and maps of data and of relationships between books and between the parts of books in this chapter. Now, there's a bunch of maps and diagrams of literary data in here. It's and it's very striking as a tool for a humanist to include this way of not just processing research and thinking about these texts, but also visualizing um, visualizing this history in this mappable form. So could you talk a little bit um, for us about... Um, any aspect of these maps and diagrams that you feel is most important—the process of creating them, what kind of work this does for you—and perhaps um, also in broader terms, can you place your decision to include this in a book about the history of poetry more broadly? And you know, do you think that we're going to be seeing more of this in the field? Or um, so, any aspect of that stuff—mapping and diagram, literary data.
0: Sure. Well, when I was doing this, I, I wasn't thinking of myself as engaging in the digital humanities. But since I've since then, I've sort of moved a little bit or thought about moving in that direction and realized that, yes, it was actually in some ways reflective of that um, approach, um, although in pretty straightforward ways overall. Um, what those maps, those, those diagrams um, mostly show is a kind of cross tabulation of the contents of these different anthologies um, in a way that would be difficult to do in words um, because it would simply be a list of numbers and then a summary interpretation. Um, and it was just much easier to present it as. Um, As charts um, and to allow the reader to pick out the particular details that were of most interest to them. Um, In the case of the composition of the different anthologies, the problem was that we take for granted that we know what a poem is. Uh, But in fact, that's not the case. Um, The way to uh, identify a poem changed over time and different anthologists looking at the early literary record. Um, In some cases, they had access to somewhat different sources, but in many cases, they were looking at the same sources but picked out different bits of them to say this is a poem based on different principles. And I certainly needed to describe to some extent what they were doing, but I think it illustrates much better the outcome of that process to show numerically how much variation there was in the view you get of early poetry as a result of each of these different principles of selection. Um, so for example, some um of these editors um basically picked anything that they they thought rhymed as a poem. Um, others were um more selective and looked, for example, at the way things were introduced. Um, it had to be quoted as a poem, saying, a poem says. Um, and there were also very ambiguous cases, for example, inscriptions on objects that were in rhyme. Um, they would disagree, and I can describe that, but I think it's uh, more striking for um, and, and in some ways more useful for the reader to see a chart of that, and to show the different um, the different makeup of each anthology as a result of that um, and it was also a you know behind that is a, quite a bit of data I had to compile a list of um what was in each of these anthologies and um have, uh, run a comparison of them. Um, but there's no way to present all that data directly. It would be useless to pre- to try to, uh, you know, do a table with all that underlying data. So, um, it just made sense to summarize it in, um, charts and then give a few examples in the text.
1: And one of the things that you're alluding to is that the process of, Research for the book actually involved you not just using a lot of databases but also creating databases for yourself that that never showed up ultimately in the book right the the material. Um, traces in terms of these, or in the form of these diagrams and maps, um, are, are things that the reader actually has access to. But there was a whole lot of work that went into this where you actually were creating your own databases to understand these trends and to map these trends, right?
0: Yeah, I had to basically just um, compile, make a database that included um, an entry for every occurrence of every poem from the pre qin period in um, any of these Anthologies, and um, fortunately, there were electronic editions of many of these books to start from, which makes it much easier. And in fact, probably uh, much of the work for the book couldn't have been done without access to um, electronic editions of larger collections of poetry, because the, um, the things I was looking for are often pretty scattered. Um, but yes, then I compiled that into a database and just did ran cross tabs comparing the different collections.
1: And this is actually, this gets me to one of the things about the book that I find most, um, most inspiring and most impressive about what you're bringing to this, um, this research and telling the story. And that is the really vast range of kinds of materials that you're bringing to Uh, to this research and to telling this story about the relationship between canonical and secular poems. Because in addition to these databases, in addition to electronic resources, in addition to a really sensitive reading of um, portions of text from the very smallest to the very anthologies and collections, you also incorporated a really fascinating discussion in at least a couple of these chapters of the way that anthologists and compilers or authors and readers thought about inscriptions on material objects, stone, metal, other kinds of objects, as uh, or in relation to the idea of poetry. So one of the really fascinating things about this chapter in particular is a discussion of inscriptions on material objects, and stone monuments and inscriptions and bronze vessels are the two most important here. The issue that comes up in this chapter is um, whether or not these inscriptions counted as poems or as poetry. And one of the most interesting examples for me in this chapter is the example of the Ten Stone Drum. So, can you talk a little bit about that example for listeners?
0: Sure. Um, so, that's probably one of the most famous cases of and kind of early archaeological discovery in China that. Was also a literary discovery. It was a set of sort of large barrel shaped uh, rocks or, or carved uh, rocks that um, had writing on them. They were discovered in the Tang Dynasty, um, the seventh century they were discovered, but um, people initially don't seem to have known how to read them, but they all agreed that they were very early texts. And it was clear even uh, probably early on that just from their structure, the way they were laid out, that they were probably um, poetry. But they were very unusual kinds of objects. And they're still extant. You can see them in Beijing, but very worn down. Um, So actually, they're less readable than they used to be. Um, But um, the problem is, do we call them poems? Um, The fact that they, uh, once they were deciphered, turned out to have rhyme in them um, doesn't automatically mean that people are going to consider them poems because many early inscriptions have rhyme but weren't necessarily counted in poems, don't show up in anthologies of poetry. And in um, the late Tang and early Song dynasties, people start to figure out what these mean and to be able to read them. And they eventually start calling them poetry, um, in particular after finding... Parallels and drawing analogies to particular poems in the, the canon. And they liken them in terms of wording um, to uh, a couple of poems associated with the period of uh, King Xuan of the Zhou, uh, uh, the Western Zhou King. And um, that's one of the bases for dating them to his reign, um, which is not widely accepted anymore, but because they could be likened to this canonical poem, therefore they were treated as poems. And um, today, when they're discussed, in some contexts, they're called the stone drum texts. In some contexts, they're called the stone drum poems. And I think this ambiguity has followed not just them, but a lot of inscriptions around. Um, and part of the reason it's so hard to uh, definitively say one way or the other is that the genre distinctions that we take for granted, something is poetry or prose, um, probably just didn't exist at the time these texts were created, and so the fact that they rhyme doesn't put them necessarily into a distinct category the way we might assume.
1: And this is actually, it, for me, as I'm listening to you describe this, it seems like one more example of um, this, um, the the very... Um, The importance of and the permeation of the uh, use of comparison as an epistemic device through so many of the phases of this history. I mean, here again, it sounds like you have a case of identification and definition via comparison. So comparison as an epistemic tool also, again, I think for me really interestingly comes up here. So chapter three looks at the use of the classic as a model for poetic composition. The chapter looks at three important imitators and we'll get to the importance of imitation and its Perhaps cousin forgery also in a really really interesting ways um, in a moment and in another chapter. Um, but imitators of the Book of Poems poems that were important literary models for later readers and that maintained a really clear connection to core issues and studies of the Book of Poems. So there are three examples you talk about, and I'll talk. About, I'll briefly mention two, and then ask you to talk a little bit about the third. Um, one example you talk about is songs used in state rituals by dynasties since the Qin. You also Talk about Tang poets who are writing in a kind of revivalist mode, and you also talk about finally a set of early Song dynasty political hymns. Um, most, I think, um, strikingly for me, which involve Renzong and his plow. Can these are really fun? The story is um, is actually you know, it's a lot of fun to read through. So, can you talk a little bit about these poems and Renzong and his plow and what's happening here?
0: Sure. And actually, I, um, I'm curious to, to find out more about these because um, I did what work I could to figure out the uh, what was going on, but they're still very strange um, set of, of texts. Uh, the background is that Ren Song, um, an early Song emperor um, in the 1030s came to power as a uh, A boy, um, and the Empress Liu was his regent, and when he came of age, she was not um, willing to give up power, it seems, and um, tried um, somewhat like uh, Empress Wu in the Tang Dynasty to rule in her own right. She took on some of the prerogatives of um, emperorship, um, including performing, for example, rituals in the ancestral temple of the ruling family in the garb of an emperor. And this was really a constitutional crisis. And one of the ways of um, dealing with it, of trying to solve the problem, but also of taking sides for officials at of court was to write poetry that directly or indirectly addressed these issues. And for whatever reason, at In this particular juncture, a lot of the um, poetry that was submitted to court took the form of um, kind of mock um, canonical poems. There were these sort of um, hymns modeled on either those in the canon or... Tang Dynasty texts that were themselves modeled on um, the canon in some ways. And they tried, these officials tried to uh, stake out positions um, to encourage the emperor, for example, it seems, to assert his authority more um, through these sets of poems. For example, one of the simple devices they used was to set up um, a series of what are called shi, uh, sets of ten uh, poems in the original um, hymns in the Book of Poems, but to only write um, an incomplete set um, and to leave to future history the writing of the last few, which would seem to suggest that here, Emperor, it's your prerogative to to have to write this um, epic about you. And um, that's a very unusual phenomenon. It doesn't seem to have occurred at any other uh, points that I've seen, and yet there are at least about a half a dozen of these um, that survive. There are other related texts that don't, that we know existed. So, um, at that period in the early Song, there seems to have been a kind of willingness to obscure the boundaries between the canon and other writing, um, and um, that bled into this um, kind of political realm. So the plowing ceremony business was simply that the um, plowing ceremony was one of the ways the emperor marked the beginning of the new year. Um, he plowed a symbolic first row, um to start the um, agricultural year for the entire nation. And this happened, uh, Renzong's first uh, plowing ceremony took place just a couple of days after this uh, ceremony by Empress Liu to um, worship the imperial ancestors and seems to have been a kind of perhaps negotiated response to that, um, that he would have also some of the prerogatives of the emperor, of uh, emperorship. And, um, these odes celebrate in um, extreme terms the um, the emperor's gusto in in plowing the, the field, which is kind of a banal ceremony, and, and no earlier text from the song that I could find talks about earlier emperors performing this particular ceremony. They, they did it, we know they did, it was just normal, but um, it was never a big deal. But um, they made it something to celebrate, and um, the way to do that was to write a poem like one in the book of poems.
1: Great, thank you. And and I just loved reading reading that story. It was a, just so much fun. Now, as we move into um, the second part of the book or the the later chapters of the book, one of the recurring themes that comes up is the importance of tropes known as Fubi and Shing. Can you say a little bit about, about that? What are the Fubi and Bianxing tropes and why in what way are they important to this story as we move forward?
0: Sure. Well the we, what they are is, is always going, I think, to be the topic of debate. Um, there are three out of a set of six um, what are called principles of poetry or principles of, um, in some cases, they're called principles of the poets um, that are listed in early texts. And they, um, the three of them simply name parts of um, the collection, but these three, Fu, Bi, and Xing, seem to be, or at least were later interpreted to be, um, something like tropes um, that have to do with the relationship between what is talked about in the text and another layer of meaning. Um, and Fu is usually interpreted as the most direct, um, something like um, direct narration. And Bi and Xing are more indirect use of imagery or metaphor, um, but different commentators disagree quite a bit about exactly how to make that, um, distinction. Um, what is so interesting for me is how people took these three terms from the interpretation of the book of poems and and early commentators, um, did use them somewhat in analyzing the poems to say, for example, this image of a natural phenomenon like, um, birds flying around or um, plants blooming isn't just about birds and and bees. It's actually about some underlying meaning. And then the reason the poet evokes it as a bee or thing is um, to talk about some phenomenon in the human realm, often a a criticism, for example, or a praise uh, for political leaders. And, um, people then start to use these to talk about other poems outside of the book of poems, but in adapting them to that analysis, um, they often have to develop more elaborate definitions, uh, more elaborate ways of using them that later people writing about the book of poems latch onto. They say, wow, this is a, well, they don't say it out loud because, um, Part of the point is that it's always surreptitious, but they seem to notice these redefinitions and um, increasing precision in the use of these terms and find that useful then to go back to the book of poems with and and, uh, reanalyze it.
1: Right. And so one of the really interesting things here that you're showing is that these tropes So they're devised um, to talk about initially the Book of Poems. They come by commentators to be used to also talk about secular poetry. But then you're showing so there's this movement from the the canon to secular poetry. But then you're showing that then um, major Tang Dynasty commentators who are talking back about the canon now look at what these or the way some of these earlier commentators use these tropes to talk about secular poetry, thought that's really neat. Let me use that to talk about the canon. And so borrow these ways of talking about poetry from people who are talking about secular poetry, use it to talk about the canon, but don't, don't say that they're doing that. So there's this lack of attribution of where their sources are coming from. So they don't want to admit that they got um, these tools for talking about fu bian ching and interpreting these in the context of the canon from these other schmoes who were talking about secular poetry. Why? Why is that? Why don't they want to admit that? Well,
0: um, my sen- and in some cases they do it verbatim. Um, there are passages in the authoritative state-sponsored uh, Tang commentaries on the on the Book of Poems. That are taken directly from um, the most important uh, Southern Dynasties book of um, sort of genre theory, literary criticism, uh, Wenxin Long. and clearly, um, you know, it's not a coincidence they were clearly lifting it from from that source. But I suspect my reading of it is that that was simply not a legitimate source to quote by title. Um, It didn't have the authority that the uh, sources that are quoted by title, because um, there are many books are, for example, um, other classics, certainly many commentaries, um, standard historical works are all quoted by title in these, uh, these notes. Um, But no, not a single work of this kind of literary criticism ever is, even when we know that, directly or indirectly, um, it's being incorporated. So clearly, it was simply not considered an appropriate kind of text to to cite. The question then becomes why they did so, and it simply does seem to be that these ideas were both so powerful and, and so appealing, but also had become so ubiquitous fit with people's understanding of what these terms would be meant that um, they were not at all out of place in this context.
1: Great. Now, at this point in this, in the story that you're telling, Zhu Xi comes into the story and also... Um, what also comes into the story is another, what I think of as a really cool use of sources, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, how does Juji come into the story? He creates a way of interpreting and laying out the poems that's actually really different from a previous version of the text, a text we call the Mao text. Part of this is he developed this new layer of commentarial analysis or commentarial apparatus that identifies these three tropes we're talking about, Fubi and Xing, in each stanza, or sort of, so each stanza of the poem that he looks at, he marks as one or a combination of these tropes. And this is significantly different, as you show, from what's come before. Now, you show here that the model for his application of these tropes in this way um, to understanding and to marking out and analyzing the poetry classic or the book of poems was actually also a non-canonical text, but it was a non-canonical text that he himself produced. And here, the chutsu comes back into the story, and also another really part of the, really interesting part of this story comes in. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So, yeah, as you said, what Jushi does is, is something strikingly new that sometimes earlier poets, earlier commentators on the poems will point out in a particular place, this is Fu, this is Bi, this is Xing. Um, And in the course of the Song, um, especially scholars in the Tao Learning School, of which Zhu Xi is kind of the, often seen as kind of the culmination, um, talked about how these could combine, um, how a particular poem could contain elements of both, but nobody had ever tried to analyze every last bit of every last poem as consisting of one or the other or some mixture. So that is, um, that's strikingly new. And, um, it also, um, turns out to not even have been Zhu um, Xi's understanding of it early on. Um, it's not until the final version of his commentary that we actually see this system um, come out in, in its full form. Um, and the way I uh, retrace what happened was that he actually did, as you suggested, first not for the Book of Poems, but actually for his commentary on Chu um the collection of early uh, poems from the state of truth from after the, you know, several couple of centuries after the uh, book of poems was finished. And that's an an important uh, fact for a couple of reasons. One, this idea of people getting things out of literary criticism that um, they put surreptitiously into their analysis of the book of poems, that same pattern comes out very strikingly here. And we also have Good evidence from the time about pers- of how very unusual it was, um, and very sort of under the table it was for Jushi even to be working on Tutsu at all. We have uh, remarks from his disciples saying they didn't know until the very end of his life that he was working on this, um, and it seems to have circulated very um, in very small circles until after his death when it was eventually printed. Um, and so he was working on this, but it doesn't seem to have been an appropriate text uh, for his public image as a Tao Learning scholar. Um, but he, from my reading of the commentary, he really did um, get a lot out of it. And in the course of analyzing the chuci, he devised this new scheme, this new way of approaching the Fubishing analysis of the text, which... Is very much what he then applied back to the book of poems. But that whole process has been obscured because, A, he doesn't tell us about it directly, but also I think he intentionally obscured aspects of it um, because it was, again, inappropriate to use the Chusa reading of the as a source for reading the book of poems.
1: It's super cool. And one of the other Or one of um, the really striking things about this super cool um, chapter and this super cool example is that you're invoking first drafts of Jushi's work in your analysis. And for people who um, maybe aren't full-time in the study of Chinese classical texts, this might seem um, like a really interesting – and for me, it seems like a really interesting and really surprising methodology. We don't think about classical Chinese texts as having first drafts, and certainly not first drafts that we can access. I mean, that's, for me, really striking in terms of methodology. Can you talk a little bit about your use of Jushi's drafts here? How did you access that level of text, and what did it allow you to do?
0: Sure. Well, it's been known for a long time um, that Jushi revised not just his commentary on the Book of Poems, but actually several of his classical commentaries. Um, And in other cases, we actually have um, a pretty good picture of some of his um, early versions and the revisions that he made. Um, In the case of his commentary on the Book of Poems, um, his version completed in 1177 circulated pretty widely. Um, But it's also famously one that he repudiated in the preface to a commentary by his um, sort of elder fellow member of the Tao Learning Group, uh, Lu Zuxian. Um, And he, um, you know, revised it pretty heavily that we don't know exactly when the final version was completed, but sometime in the late um, 1190s, he died in 1200. Um, And so, it's, there are two sources that I use for that. One, I started doing this on my own and then discovered that actually in the collected works of Jushi published about 10 years ago, um, they actually did much of this work as well, um, that other commentaries that were written after 1177 um, quote, because they had uh, access to copies of this earlier version of the text, um, quote from Juxi's uh, notes Um And that tells us that a lot of things that we see in the final version weren't there or were different. Um, There are also the other piece of evidence that um, is less direct, but is also quite strong, I think is the discussions with his disciples that appear in his collected conversations, again, compiled posthumously on the, but on the basis of the notes um, taken by disciples at the time. And, if you look at what his disciple, the questions his disciples ask, they're clearly consonant with the version that is reflected in the in the eleven seventy seven version, and they don't ask about many of the things that appear in the final version that is now taken as Jushi's views on the poems, um, and particularly this Fu Bixing issue, they s- reflect a very different approach. They don't. Um, he doesn't seem to have had, and his students don't seem to have been aware at the time, of this idea of labeling every single stanza with either fubishing or one of a narrow set of combinations of them. Um, nor does he seem even to have been convinced that it was possible to do that. There are cases where he says, well, you could see it as this, or you could see it as that. And both interpretations work. Um, but his final version doesn't have any space for that. It's simply one or the other. Um, So it was very interesting to see the process at work and to see what kind of changes were going on. And that also then allows me to make the claim that what happened in between 1177 and 1200, one of the things that we know happened was his work on the Chutsu. And so that um, chronology is at least plausible that it was the work on the Chutsu that um, led to these changes in his reading of the book of poems.
1: Great. Thank you. Now here um, in this chapter, and as we move to the last part of the book, we have, again, even though we haven't talked about this before, but this is true in the earlier parts of the book, we have the element of time becoming really central to what's happening in the chapter, especially here in the way that Ju Shi is dealing with Chu Chuyuan, the, the author of the Chutsu, or the author of um, one author involved in this text, um, his suicide. So time travel and sh- issues of engagement with time and how to understand it and how to understand how to position yourself um, and the the written record in terms of time is actually really central to what you're looking at here. So can you say a little bit about that?
0: Sure. That was one of the really fascinating <laughs> things that kept coming up, um, especially in the simplest form. Um, when people are talking... Um, in the Song, around Shi's time, about the relationship between uh, Chuzzi and uh, the Book of Poems, one of the tropes is to say, the only reason, these poems are, are really great, they really have the same kind of moral message as the Book of Poems. The only reason that they're not in the Book of Poems is that they were written after Confucius 's time um, it 's simply kind of an accident of history that Confucius was born too early to see them, um, but had he been born later, um, this is based on the idea um, that started in the Han Dynasty that Confucius had compiled the book of poems but um, so that implies this kind of um, contingency to history um, that um, also then implies that we as readers can kind of manipulate history, put ourselves in Confucius's position and make the kind of judgment he did uh, about early texts to include them or not in the book of poems. And so that's one way of kind of bridging um, history. But um, there's another level to it, I think, in um, in the way Zhu Xi approaches It talks about the uh, – uh, about Chuze, and particularly about Chu what he sees as Xu Yuan's work, which is that he sees the the very nature of um, interpretation and writing things that one knows will be in, read and interpreted in the future, as a way of kind of collapsing history, and. Um, it becomes a way of, first of all, um, justifying, accepting, um, the idea that she committed suicide, um, as a result of, um, his, um, unbearable political situation where his uh, ruler would not, uh, employ him properly, but by leaving this textual legacy, um, that will in a sense cause him to live again when he's read, um, and when he's read by a reader who gets him, like Zhu thinks he does, um, then there's this kind of, um, again, collapsing of of history. What's so striking then is that's not just sort of a fact about a general uh, phenomenon about um, reading and interpretation, but it gets very much into the nitty-gritty of these particular texts because they are very much about um, the way that... Um, thinking properly about how history is ordered is um, the key to proper interpretation, and that goes back actually to Confucius's conversations with his disciples about the Book of Poems. That the particular poems of these two famous um, interactions with the disciples Zixia and Zigong both, in their way, have to do with proper ordering, uh, what comes before and what comes after. Um, Confucius praises, I think it was Zixia, yeah, for um, having interpreted a poem in, in a proper way. He says, um, you know, having um, shown you what comes before, you can show me what comes after. Um, and Zhu Xi echoes this in talking about um, about Qi Yuan. And it's also reflected, actually, in the Jiayu poem that's in the Zhuangzi and, and the Analects, uh, the drive by poet of, of um, uh, which is also about what comes before and what comes after. And um, I think this way that poems open up their own interpretation and um, bring about this kind of simultaneity of sorts, but it's one that's always cognizant of... Um, the historical gulf that uh, that underlies it um, is a recurring pattern in the way people read and also um, find depth in um, their interaction with the with the canon.
1: Now, as we move into um, the the very last part of the book, we come to Chapter 5. I cannot let you go without asking you about Chapter 5 because I love Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is great. It looks at the way that mid-16th century classicists applied new techniques to the reading of the Book of Poems, focusing on one particular case. Now, the case was ostensibly... Ancient, a Lost Commentary on the Poems by the Lu School, which is one of three that had flourished in the Han. Now, the interesting thing here is that this Lu version of the poems and the associated commentary were forgeries. And this is, um, this is the chapter that actually came from um, your previous work here. Like it's, this, this is the germ of the entire book in a way. A central figure in this tale of forgery was this really nifty guy, Feng Feng. Can you introduce him and talk a little bit about this case and and the centrality of this case for for your analysis?
0: Sure. So Feng Feng was a 16th century um, scholar official, although um, his official career was cut short by uh, a court scandal that his father was involved in. And he was left to, um, write and what he ended up writing a lot of, uh, most of his output was, um, consisted of, uh, forgeries, um, that were like this Lu poems, um, claimed to have been found in his family book collection, which was actually one of the best, um, known book collections in China at the time and supposedly went back to the Song dynasty and, in fact, as far as we can tell, he completely made up himself and for all his forgeries, he claimed to have found better versions of the uh of the classics, often written in ancient looking script, and um that solved a number of longstanding textual problems, um, as well as uh, disproving some of his contemporaries' theories. And so that's what a lot of the uh, this version of the Lou poems does, is on the one hand, it uh, claims to be ancient and uh, more reliable than any of the ex- other extant versions of the text. So it differs quite a bit in the structure, in the order, um, and uh, down to the level of of wording um, of the poems themselves, as well as having um, additional commentary uh, in many, many layers, um, most of which he attributed to his own ancestors. But um, the other thing it does is actually give justification. To some contemporary theories, and um, attempt to disprove other theories about how to read the poems. Um, So the idea that from Zhu Xi that every poem had to be part uh, had to be mapped as fu bixing or a combination, for example, um, is reflected in these in, in these commentaries. Which also do that, although they change uh, Zhu Xi's interpretations and come up with new combinations. And the, some of these are actually new combinations that had been derived in the interim um, between Zhu Xi's time and Feng Feng's time in the, 15th, in the 16th century. Um, but now he gives them this pedigree as very ancient and therefore more reliable than. Jushi's interpretations
1: and doesn't he talk smack about Jushi?
0: oh he's he makes he one of the many many people he attacks in these commentaries, although he puts these attacks into the mouths of other people, is Jushi and his claim is that Jushi had simply secretly, been copying from um, the awesome. earlier commentaries that, that his ancestor had in his family library, and um, he was simply um, cribbing from that and uh, misinterpreting it. So this idea that um, this is one this is one way of solving the problem of aren't you just doing what you did? No, she was just copying from uh, from this, um, and while
1: he's completely making this. Oh, stuff it,
0: up. it's all completely made up. Now the the interesting thing is. The, this uh, mm-hmm. set of commentaries, which itself actually gets kind of warped by one of his publishers, who um, adapts it into a form that he thinks will be more saleable, um, becomes extremely popular in the late Ming and into the very early Qing. Um, even when people are somewhat dubious about its origins, they still find that it solves um, mm-hmm. some deep textual problems. Um, And this um, is is one of his, he wrote many of these forgeries, but this is one of his two most successful. And um, there are many, many different late Ming um, commentaries on the book of poems that, to a greater or lesser degree, actually incorporate the Lu poem, the so-called Lu poems, views um and um i think it what it did was give a kind of um ancient pedigree to very uh, appealing ideas at the time um one of the ways he reads the poems is as little um kind of does a literary interpretation reads them as little stories in a way that was quite popular at his time and there's a, a wonderful book uh, by leo yuting on on ming um Commentaries on interpretations of the Book of Poems who shows how this trend uh, played out over the course of the last century or so of the Ming. Um, and the only real difference in some ways between um, the legitimate commentaries and the forgery is simply how much um, uh, the claim to where it came from. Um, but the techniques he's using are not... Um, that different from his contemporaries.
1: If he's completely making stuff up, and people are actually worried—I mean, people are actually kind of not entirely unaware that there are problems. What makes his forgery or his forgeries so convincing? Why? Why are they so successful for so long? <sighs>
0: Well um I think that f- first of all forgery let him do something which other people generally were much more reticent to do which is actually to change the text when when the text was hard to interpret um he could simply say well actually that's because this Character should it should be this character. Um, and when, for example, poems seem to be in the wrong place, there was a um, couple of layers of organization within the canon of larger parts and smaller parts. And he moved poems around and commentators had often expressed uncertainty and, and concern that, Holmes didn't seem to be in the right place, that they were supposed to be from this state, but they would make more sense coming from that state. He could simply move them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that then would give um, readers, if they believed, the story about the origin. Um, And given that he was actually a a well-known scholar and his family had supposedly um, owned this extensive book collection. It was not an entirely implausible claim. Um, I think people still wanted that, that grounding. Um, so that was, that was certainly part of it. Part of it was, I think also this delight in this period. This is a period when, um, the privately published book market is, um, is booming. Um, people are really looking for exciting new, which can include exciting new old things. Um, and this is a, a novelty. And, the best, and in some ways, the best, the most popular kind of novelty at the time were these ancient novelties, newly discovered ancient texts. And this um, was appealing for precisely that reason.
1: Now, by the end of this, I have just two more questions for you before we, um, we wrap up and we look forward. Um, by this part of the book, and this is the last body chapter of the book before the conclusion, you're showing here that by the late Ming, the boundary between canonical and secular poetry had become more porous than ever before. How does Feng fang's forgery get us there? Like how, how, what do we need to know um, to understand that where, uh, by the end of this book?
0: Well, certainly the way he brings in, um, a lot of ideas again surreptitiously from um, contemporary literary theory, but then also um, for him, contemporary uh, literary theory. Um, but then also in the period sort of immediately after into the early Qing, um we start to see commentators citing texts, literary texts um, of criticism that, they wouldn't have been citing before. Um, and this is, um, a striking change. So we talked already about how the Tang dynasty, uh, state sponsored commentaries verbatim use definitions of, um, key terms that come from earlier works of literary criticism, but they don't, um, mention the title. They, um, hide that fact. Um, one of the striking changes um, in the early Qing is people actually start to talk about um, these texts openly, cite them. And that's to me strong evidence that this category of shi poems um, encompassed the the classic and secular poems and they could be thought about together um, in a way that was um, certainly underla- underlay what people were doing in earlier periods, but they tended not to do it so openly. And I think that's a, a striking change. Great.
1: And now, by the conclusion, you're actually taking this story and, and looking forward from the late Ming and from the um, early to mid Qing, the May 4th movement. How did intellectuals? associated with the May 4th movement, um, engage the Book of Poems and its relationship to secular poetry and to a larger category we might call, or they may have called Chinese literature.
0: Sure. Well, that, I I really just briefly touch on that. And I'm I'm certainly not an expert on, on 20th century history. But one of the things I found striking was that in the May 4th movement, when there's this rejection of Confucian culture, Confucius and Company, his um, antique shop and so on, and a a shift toward um, sort of scientific um, learning with many terms imported from um, the West. Um, One of the things that fares relatively well is the Book of Poems. Um, unlike other classical texts, um, it's actually prized by, um, at least some writers in the May 4th movement in a particular way, um, and it's reinterpreted as a source of knowledge of early folklore and um also as it's also safe because it's a literary text um, and these are two ways of um, prizing the text in new terms um this idea of literature i discuss a little bit um, in chinese oneia is um, a new category it, it doesn't map perfectly on to any um pre-modern way of thinking about how to divide up um, the cultural or textual realm uh, but unlike other Confucian classics, the Book of Poems fits this idea of literature and therefore can be sort of safely read as something to be appreciated as a kind of spirit of um, the early Chinese nation. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, Gets read, and the terms um, like fu bian Xing um, that are used in its interpretation can sometimes be kind of salvaged as literary terms. Um, and in that respect, it um, is really this this ongoing process of transforming it as something to be read simply as a, from something simply to be read as a canonical classical text into something um, that can be read like other poetry as uh, what we now call literature, um, the May 4th movement isn't entirely a break either, um, precisely because of what had been going on for many centuries before.
1: Well, Bruce, thank you so much for making the time. Um, I've taken up a ton of your time, um, but I'm your wife, so I'm allowed to (laughs) do that. (laughs) So we've talked about a lot of aspects of the book, but of course, there's a ton of stuff in here that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that you want to mention, um, perhaps especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read it?
0: Um, hmm. What would I want? Um, One... um, I think we've covered um, quite a bit of it one um, one thing that I think um No, I I, I I don't think there's anything else I think covered
1: it. Mm, no. <laughs> I will say though that the cover is very beautiful, and I know that was um, you very carefully worked on that. And I will say for listeners, the cover is particularly beautiful, and I know you you worked hard to make it that way. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What project um, is can, is currently inspiring you?
0: Well, speaking of the cover, <laughs> if you look very closely, if you happen to have a copy of the book in your hand or look at or looking at a copy on the website. But there's someone writing a poem um, at a table, and on that table is, along with a long scroll of paper and some ink, um, a little dish, a pot um, with two little flanges on it, and it's a little incense burner. And um, this was not at all intentional, but it turns out that this is what I'm working on now. Um, Not this particular incense burner, but um, in my interest in forgeries and um, faking and how people assessed fakes. Um, I'm interested in, I'm moving into um, a material example of that, which is Incense Burners like this one on the cover, uh, but ones from the Ming dynasty um, or supposedly from um, the Ming dynasty. And so I'm working on uh, a short book on um, how both textually and materially um, a set of bronze incense burners supposedly from the early 15th century um, were created actually probably in the late 16th century and later um, as a way of examining the whole process of authentication and providing provenance for things um, and then faking things that met those criteria.
1: Well, thank you so much. Best of luck with that project. Thank Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks, honey. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.